few years ago in conversation with visual artist Dylan Mortimer, we identified what we called third rail topics in conversation. Things that when talked about or sometimes even approached in conversation, overcharged conversations to the point of explosion. Topics that blew things up between individuals as well as whole people groups. Dylan, then in his early 30s, and staring a potentially early death in the face due to his cystic fibrosis, flat out said, I don't have time to not talk about things that matter. I'd rather tap that third rail and see what I can do with that energy. Among the things that matter, things that we identified as third rail topics were things like race, religion, gender, sex, money, you know, the stuff that life actually revolves around. And since that conversation, I've tried to emulate Dylan's posture and lean into these conversations instead of away from them. That's part of what this podcast is about. And then since the 2016 election, I found myself far more reticent to approach conversations folks considered political. And while I'm not alone in that sentiment, the real problem is that I really like political conversations. In fact, the way I see things, to talk politics is really to just talk about the way we live together. Which is to say, at least on some level, there might not be a conversation that isn't political. Eugene Cho's most recent book, Thou Shalt Not Be a Jerk, is a very thoughtful effort in the direction of leading people to reach out and touch that third rail, knowing full well the power it holds, but not letting the fear of that power distort the way we relate to the people near us, our neighbors. I really enjoyed my conversation with Eugene Cho, and I think you will too. Check it out. Well, hello, Gene. Hey, man. How are you? I'm great. You're in uh, Ohio? I'm in Nebraska right now. You're in Nebraska. It's like Ohio. It is like Ohio. It is like Ohio. <laughs> A little bit like Ohio. Uh, what are you yeah. doing in Nebraska? I'm on vacation. Uh, um, I know, but I come out here once or twice a year just to uh declutter uncon- uh, disconnect and do some fishing hunting yeah things like that it became a spot like you you went a few times was there like a like a moment you were in nebraska and you felt like whoa i need to come back here like how'd that happen i had a i had a uh an uncle and aunt who moved out to uh, nebraska it's a crazy story but they were living in la in orange county and just got kind of tired of everything and decided to move out here to become farmers and uh, this is a while ago, probably about 12 years ago or so. Yeah. Visited them. And I was like, wow, this is really, I love this. I, I love this. So I probably couldn't live here, but you know, when you live in the city, places yeah. to head out like Nebraska is, is cool. I'm in a town of 300 people. And unless I go to a, a shopping center 25 miles away, I won't see anybody forever. So, wow. yep, that's what I'm doing. You, is that a thing you recognize at some point you needed was like actual geographical space and distance yeah yeah so even even when we're in seattle like we have to actually physically leave washington to really rest yeah i don't know what it is especially as a pastor maybe it's different now but when i was a pastor i I needed it so our our go-to spot as a family was vancouver um yeah uh up in british columbia and so Mm -hmm. yeah and you're in oc i'm assuming or la socal no i'm up in um I'm, i'm up near oakland so I'm in a town called Martinez, right. which is just east That's of Oakland. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Good. Now, you uh, surviving, hanging in there? Oh, yeah. More than. There are okay. ways in which we're flourishing. 
That's great. Yeah. Um, so you're in Nebraska, um, but you live in Seattle. That's right. And are you from Seattle? I feel like you're not. I'm from San Francisco in the city. Yeah, that's what I thought. Someone, uh, yeah. someone said, I think he's from here. And I didn't yeah. actually know that until they mentioned it. I was pretty sure they were confusing with somebody else. And I was like, no, I think he's, I think he's from another part of the country, but no. you're, you're from, you were born in San Francisco. No, no, I was born and raised, born in Seoul, South Korea, immigrated to San Francisco at the age of six, okay. went to Lowell High School, went to UC Davis, and then left uh, California for grad school. And I really haven't been back since. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And you've been in Seattle for how long? Man, that's a good question. Uh, I think my wife and I drove out there right after we got married in 97. Wow. So that's a that? long time. Yeah. And, you know, we're slowly in the process of leaving. Uh, we'll be moving to D.C. next year. So yeah. it's a year-long grieving process that yeah. we're going through. <laughs> right. Yeah. Start early. If you were to call somewhere home, does San Francisco still feel like home? Does Seattle feel like home? Where is, in your like, in, the, in your guts, like, where does your soul call home? Yeah, it's probably, you know, that's, a, that's a hard question. I think it's Seattle, but uh, there is veracity to the song Left My Heart in San Francisco. There's that. <laughs> and Seoul, Korea still is the only place when I fly into Seoul, Korea, I start weeping a little bit. Really? Um, so, and I left when I was six, but there's this Korean word called koihang, which... Yeah. The, the word hometown, it doesn't do it justice. It's like your, it's like deep soul home. Yeah. You know? and so it's very emotional, very emotional. And so whenever I go back, I still, um, still, yeah, I still uh, shed a tear or two when I act, when I land, not when I leave, but when I land, I do. Yeah. Is that, was that something that you, was, is that, has it always been true? Is there a story that's attached to that? Was it like a moment you like realize, like, where, where did that start? Or is it just like, hey, spiritually... Something about this ge this geographical place. I mean, Wendell Berry's whole notion of like our 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 social relationship with the place in which we live. Yeah. Um. Was is it something that's more primal, or is there a story in your life that's attached to that sense of home? No, I don't think it's so much a story, but you know, I think it's 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 it is connected to immigration. You know, you, yeah. when you okay. when you leave the country and you arrive in San Francisco, and as beautiful as San Francisco is. You know, at the age of six, I understood what it meant to be an immigrant as an other, as not yes. fully accepted. Yeah. And there's something about going back to Korea, even though that's a story in itself. Mm. Like when I go mm -hmm. back to Korea, I have heard people tell me, go back home. And mm. this, this is coming from Koreans telling me, go back home. Mm. Uh, and so being bicultural, you understand that there's just something about the, the reality that you don't really fully belong anywhere. Hmm. Which is part of why when I'm asking you about home, it's sort of this, it's a little bit odd. Like I, I have associations here. I have associations here. I have, I have associations here. Yeah. Your story, because it's framed by uh, immigration, has a different kind of associate. You're, you're at least your sole orientation towards pl of place. Right. Because it's framed by immigration is different, like necessarily. Yeah. 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 I think so. Um. Does that define, or does that define, like, well, actually, I just asked you straight up, like, how, how does that affect the way you 
like speak into particular places? Because, I mean, you've been in Seattle for a long time. You travel, you teach into particular places. Like in terms of like speaking into a particular place and being somewhere, does your sense of like what you're teaching and calling people to purpose, is that is that also kind of rearranged by like a sense of home in general here, like you're, you're traveling in America, you're telling these stories, you're, you're, you know, you're calling people like local action. Is it informed by that? Yeah, I think so. In part, I mean, it's a, it's a mixture of lots of things, you know, yeah. and I think for all of us, you know, we're such a hodgepodge of lots of experiences and views that at times feels paradoxical or oxymoronic in some ways. Yeah. But yeah, I think the idea of locality obviously matters. And then, you know, the idea of being an immigrant and always being seen as an other, I think it informs my inclination towards those who are marginalized. Uh, you know, the idea of a higher citizenship beyond this earth. Yeah. You know, not to approach it from a fatalistic perspective, but certainly striving for so long to, to belong somewhere, I think becoming a, a Christ follower really shaped the idea that, yes, you can be localized, you can be rooted, you can be incarnational. You also need to have a, a deeper identity beyond what's, what's here. So all of it, you know, at times it feels like it's seamless and then at times it feels like it's all, you know, a hodgepodge of, of paradoxes. But yeah. Um, and then you've got the craziness of 2020, of yes, politics, of COVID. And then it just everything just, you know, it's 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 everything is exaggerated and exacerbated, like everything. Everything's on 11. Oh my gosh! I don't know how well I'm familiar if you're familiar at all. Well, you're somewhat familiar, but I know I don't have familiar with uh, with Daniel White Hodge. But he he posted a thing this morning. He said he said my uh, his 2020 conspiracy theory is that time travel is actually real, and that someone from the future keeps coming back to 2020 to fix it and just makes it worse every time. <laughs> I was like. Homie, I, I, know, I, I kind of buy that a man, little bit. I hope, I hope Daniel clearly take ownership over that idea because that could easily be a screenplay right there. I need it. That could be a screenplay. I need it in my life. I want to get to, uh, I want to get to your book, uh, but I want to come in through a doorway. And I'll do this with a lot of guests. Uh, I don't do it with all guests, uh, but I'll do it with, with guests, particularly like yourself, uh, for whom words have a particular power. So part of what you've done over the course of your work is you'll reorient people's understanding of not just words, but their use of words. That When you say this, you think you mean, but really you're mm-hmm. saying. Or mm-hmm. when you say this, you want to mean this, and I need you to mean this. Uh, like there is this fluidity to language that not everyone actually grasps and that's fine. Mm. That's not okay. But for some of us and you included, it's necessary to understand that like words are not static. They're quite literally alive. They change the way we see, they change the way, which is part of why you communicate the way you do. So I'd love to run you through. It's just a practice. It's kind of, it's a practice of lexicon. There's no like right or wrong here. But I'm going to throw some yeah. words at you, and all I want you to do is, is vamp on it in like whatever way it pops in your like whatever it stirs in you. So if it's a story, then run with the story. If you've got a like sure. a functional definition you really wish people were carrying around, then give me that. Sure. But I'm just going to give you a word, and you and just sure. I want you to vamp on it as long as as long as your heart and soul is you know feeling it. So I I want to start with the word you know the place or the space the cultural. Yeah, the cultural space that I became initially familiar with you uh, because of is uh, what happens in you 
right now, when I say the word church, what's like, tell me about church for Eugene show. Hmm. Wow. That's not quite the word that I envisioned us starting off with. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I love church. Hmm. I have been a pastor of a local church pretty much my entire adult life since I was 21 when I went to seminary. And the reason why I pause a little bit is because this month marks the second year of stepping down as the founding and senior pastor of a church called Quest Church Mm -hmm. that my wife and I started. And it's probably not the healthiest analogies I know, but it has by all means please run with it then. (laughs) It has always felt like a fourth baby to my wife and I. Yeah. Um, And so letting it go and relinquishing it was incredibly emotional and hard. Mm. Uh, But it was a reminder to us that it never belonged to us. And Mm. a church, when I think of church, I I think of, gosh, inevitably, it's an imperfect gathering of Hmm. imperfect, broken, messed up, beautiful women, men, and children Hmm. gathered together, uh, loving community and striving to be on mission together. Hmm. Um, So I continue to love the church and I continue to see my identity in part as a pastor. Hmm. And now on a little bit of a different scale, as I seek to encourage the larger church beyond the small local church. The other thing that I'll just say about church Mm -hmm. that has both encouraged me and concerned me has always been the domination of the Western church and Mm -hmm. the domination specifically of like the white Western church. Mm -hmm. And I'm not slamming them or trying to heap insults upon them because they're also part of the church. Right. But it's always been a source of frustration that they have garnered so much attention, so much leverage. And when people are talking about the decline of the church in the United States, it's not really the larger church. It's the decline of the white, mostly the white church that's in decline. Mm -hmm. And I'm wanting people to know that there are other communities within the Capital C Church that are thriving and flourishing even during this time. And... The larger global church, particularly in the global south, in Asia. And one of the reasons why I love traveling is it gives me a glimpse of the capital C church, Mm -hmm. the true capital C global church. And it's just amazing and so humbling to get that perspective, because when you're living in the States constantly in all the, the news of the church here. Uh, it's it's just good to have a larger imagination of yeah. uh, the kingdom and the capital C church. It brings me to the, the actually. There's another. There was a word I was going to bring up a little further down the list, and I just bumped it up. Talk about whiteness. Whiteness. So, yeah, I mean, it's 2020, and there are lots of words being thrown out left and right. Yeah. And for me personally. You know, I've spoken about and written about things like whiteness or white supremacy, certainly white privilege, Mm -hmm. things of this nature. And I think it's real. I think it's something that we should all be mindful about. My concern, if I can maybe approach it from a different perspective than maybe your other guests might be, because, again, I think there's a choir of people that are talking about these things. And it's important. Mm -hmm. But I want to be able to talk about it from the angle of deep love Hmm. for my white sisters and brothers. 
Uh, and sometimes I think in the Christendom kingdom perspective, you know, we have this commitment or infatuation to be prophetic, which is, again, really important, really, really good. But I think it's really dangerous when we're simply prophetic and there's nothing to balance that prophetic voice. Hmm. I think it's so important for us good. to be both prophetic and pastoral and personal, that we're embodying these very things rather than just simply uh, building up our platform of prophetic voices. Hmm. And it's important for us to be practical. It's important for us to be persistent and 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 prayerful. And so I think those are whiteness is an important conversation uh, in some ways, I think, to help liberate white sisters and brothers about our obsession with whiteness, it being so dominant in our larger culture that could lead into blind spots, leading into white privilege and what have you. Um, but again, I, I always want to speak about these things from a pastoral heart because I'm yeah. a pastor of a multi-ethnic church mm -hmm. uh, that included many uh, white sisters and brothers as well. That's good. Talk about citizenship. Yeah, that's so interesting. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm sure there's reasons behind all of these words, but here's why it's been on my mind a little bit again this year, 2020. You know, when, when, when February, March came about early this year and coronavirus, COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2 came about, uh, as you probably know, especially living in the Bay Area, where there's a lot of Asian Americans there, mm -hmm. I was stunned and shocked and so hurt by the incessant amplified anti-Asian sentiment, both verbally and physical assaults that were taking place. And I found myself every single time my three kids left the home, including also my wife, I would say, hey, be very careful every single time because of the reality of what was going on. And I remember thinking to myself, gosh, after X amount of years in this country, after contributing all that we've sought to contribute with my parents, myself, mm -hmm. having pastored a church, started an NGO, now the president of an advocacy organization in D.C., there's a part of me that thought to myself, I literally asked myself, do I, do I really belong here? Mm. And, hmm. and I, I asked that question because it reminded me of I'm not talking one or two or handful of times. I'm talking dozens and dozens of times where people have asked me, where are you from? Where are you really American? Are you yeah. truly a, are you an American citizen? Right, right. And anytime I speak uh, words of caution around the United States, our policies, our politics, our affairs, inevitably, maybe not the first time, but inevitably somebody asks the question, are you really American? Wow. Um, and so that has been on my mind in yeah. 2020 about what does it mean to be a citizen? And I also wrote a book about, about faith and politics, and I know we'll get to that. And I speak a little bit about that tension that mm -hmm. as Christ followers, we're called to be good, engaged citizens here on this earth, seeking peace of the city, enacting justice, and yet we're also reminded that our ultimate citizenship here isn't on this earth. Hmm. And I've come to a point, I'm turning 50 very soon. I've come to this point where I have now made peace with the constant state of tension 
that I think we're called to live in as Christ followers. Hmm. And that's the primary lens in which I see my, I'm a Christ follower. And I've always wanted peace or absolute kind of like calm in my life. And I realize um, that there's always going to be the sense of tension. And so how do we then experience faithfulness and integrity, uh, robustness? How do we experience uh, a sense of flourishing in, in this mist? Let's jump right at the tension then. And um, last word, which takes us as a kind of a bridge into your book, politics. What happens in your heart, your soul, your mind when you hear the word either politics or political? What is political? What are politics? Sure. It's interesting because as you said that, uh, I think I was tempted to dry heave to, to, to throw up because sometimes it certainly feels that way. It could be a first time ever in your podcast series where a guest vomits. I, well, you, you know, know what? So, Whatever it takes you know, not, to bump right. them ratings up, man. Yeah, right. <laughs> that, that's right. You know, obviously I have a lot to say about, about politics and, um, and obviously, you know, I wrote a book this past year on the topic. So there's a couple things I would say. That, and then, I'm, you know, maybe you can start asking more, you know, directed questions. But mm-hmm. when people, I mean, either there are folks that are really obsessed about politics, it gives them a lot of excitement and joy. And there are those who are uh, exhausted by it, cynical about it. Mm-hmm. I think there are those who altogether abandoned that conversation. And the book that I wrote seeks to address all of those groups of people. But mm. let me just speak about one category for now. Yeah, please. I think there are, are some people there are some people that have chosen to altogether abandon politics using theology as the excuse or the crutch that we're only called to focus on spiritual things, mm-hmm. evangelism, salvation, heaven. And I think about how dangerous that is. <clears throat> erroneous theology is. Mm. And I think it's really important in the same way that I think obsession with politics leading to idolatry can be very, very dangerous as well. But when people ask me, hey, so what is politics? I think what we're scared of and just absolutely weary about isn't politics, it's partisan politics. It's blind allegiance to politics that we're just, you know, discouraged by. But politics, when you were to, if you were to assess a simple definition of it, I mean, it's just the art of governance. It's the art of people living together. Mm-hmm. And yeah, go to a church, go to a company, go to an organization, go to a restaurant. Everybody has some sort of politics. We might not use that word, but it's mm-hmm. really the arts of governance. And when people ask me, hey, what's the best thing about church? You, know, you, you asked me about that word earlier. The best thing about church is people. What's the worst thing about church? It's people. <laughs> Sometimes so it's right. the it's the very same people. Yes. You know, and that's why politics and society can it, it exude both incredible beauty hmm. and yet also incredible tension. That's good. And you know, dare I use this word, depravity. It has the propensity to 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 uh, exude either of those things. And so I look at politics as the art of governance and it's not the 
important, the most important way, nor is it the only way, but it is one significant way yeah. for us as Christians to live out engaged as citizens here on earth and to even love our neighbors. Again, not the only way, but it is one way for us to love our neighbors. That's good. Reading through your book, um, the word danger shows up a bunch hmm. in your book. <laughs> It's actually, okay. in, it's actually, I don't even know this. The word danger shows up in your book 25 times. What? <laughs> okay. First of all, kudos to you for counting. That scares me, <laughs> but I had no idea. Yeah. Danger, my danger. It's a subtle, it's a subtle message there. It, it is. And, and it's in there too. I mean, you talk, you were talking about the tension and then, and you did this thing just now. I mean, you, this is the, you set it up so incredibly well, cause this is in your skin. This is like, this is, it's not an idea you have. This is a thing you've lived and it's, it's in your guts. And that's why it comes off this way is when you talk about, you know, so we like to do the thing. Uh, I should say like this, white evangelicals really like to do this thing that says, here's church. And I just want to do church and spiritual stuff. And I really don't want to be political. And we'll get to like the sick Machiavellian game I get to play if I convince people that that's possible. But um, but we, you said, what you just said is like it's it's just a matter of the art of governance. It's like how how do we organize ourselves in relationship to the power structures and the power dynamics between us? That's all political. That's that's what politics are. And so mm-hmm. church is a highly political place. And you said the best part about church, the people. <laughs> You know, and then on Tuesday, the worst part about church are people, and that that's what makes it tenacious. What is it about? Um, and it might just be a matter of partisanship, but what is it about politics? The way, uh, uh, you know, uh, local legislative, state legislative, national legislative. You know, what is it about legislative politics? The court. Um, you know, voting districts that is so dangerous that it seems so volatile. Like, why is that space so incredibly volatile now? Well, I don't think it's just now. I think it's always been the case where mm-hmm. is there's a possibility for um, a group of people to dominate, a group of people to be self-serving, a group of people to have blind spots, a group of people to be prejudiced. And therefore, I mean, so if you and I and a couple other men were hanging out and what what will eventually happen directly or indirectly is that you and I and a couple other guys, you know, we're going to create something called what anthropologists call culture. We, we create a system of doing things, yeah. talking, engaging, our gathering, our hangout, our bro language, and the list goes on. And if we decided to actually begin to create not just interpersonal culture, but actually institutional culture, even if it's not ill-intended, you and I and probably a couple other guys, what we'll probably do is create cultures and systems that speak to us and serve us. Now, imagine that multiplied a thousandfold for yeah. generations and mm-hmm. generations. And so what ends up happening, I think, in a system is that you've got people who have access to certain privileges and benefits and then others who won't have those access to privileges and benefits. And just because something might be legal doesn't necessarily mean that it's it contributes to a just society, a whole society. You know, think about the craziness of lynching in this country. I mean, it's. Yeah. I mean, even saying that just gives me a violent response yeah. in my body. 
And it's just incredulous that that was not, it was legal and actually celebrated. Yeah. And it took the will of so many people. Yeah. And celebrated after church resume. services. There would be flyers passed out after church services that there would be a lynching. So they would market to folks walking out of white church spaces and they would leave the church, right? go to the field, watch the lynching and head home like it was football. Right. So I think to myself, you know, there's an image that most likely came from Portland, Oregon from the 1950s or 1960s. Some of your listeners might be familiar with it because it's made its round, uh, made its way around the interwebs. But it's this picture of a church altar with the most ginormous sign that says Jesus saves hmm. at the altar, which is mm-hmm. appropriate. I believe mm-hmm. in that theologically. And yet at the altar are probably a combination of 50, 60 hooded KKK clansmen and leaders with with the verbiage Jesus saves. And, and I know we're deviating away from the conversation about politics, but I think to myself again why it's so important for Christians to not be on the sidelines to say, hey, this doesn't matter. I shouldn't care about this. If we care about our discipleship as followers of Christ, we right. really do need to see our political engagement as, again, not the only or the ultimate but as a very important, tangible way for us to live out our faith in an imperfect world. That's good. You write in the book, you get to this relatively common dilemma, or how should I say this? It's this relatively commonly expressed dilemma, whether it's a real dilemma or not. Uh, To some, you're too conservative. This is from uh, kind of deeper into the book. To some, you're too conservative. To others, you're too liberal. To be a Christ follower is to be a faithful amid tension. Um, direct question. I don't, I don't think you're asking people at all because the rest of the book doesn't, you're not asking people to not affiliate. You're not asking people to not, um, you're not talking about being apolitical, apolitical, correct? Like this is not a call to apoliticism where, Hey, you're just going to get trapped in the system. It's all gross and you'll never be understood. Um, this tension, can you talk about like your experience with this tension, even whether it's personal or trying to coach people through it of like, oh, some people think, you know, my friends, everyone wants to be a centrist, right? Like mm. my friends think I'm, you know, these friends think I'm too conservative. My liberal friends think I'm too liberal. And if I'm perceived, you know, if I, I'm, I'm self-perceiving myself into this place where like I'm the centrist, which kind of goes back to the thing you were saying earlier. It was like, you're going to create a system that looks like you. <laughs> Because you feel like you're central to the thing. Can you talk about your experience of that tension or that dilemma or that expression? My friends think I'm too conservative. My friends think I'm too liberal. Like, what's that look like for you, either personally or pastorally? Sure. Yeah, I'm not certainly criticizing or wanting people to be apolitical. You know, I think, in fact, to be apolitical in itself seems to feel like a political statement in in many ways. (laughs) Right. And... Yeah, and and you can't escape it. It's, again, part of how people function in a larger society. My encouragement is to be careful that we don't fall into blind allegiance or submission. So I'll give an example of what I think is dangerous, blind allegiance when it comes to voting. 
Now, you know, as a pastor and as an advocacy organization president, you know, I've made a covenant with my board. I can't tell people who to vote for. Mm-hmm. But I think there's something really dangerous that I hear, even coming from Christian leaders, when I hear people say, just vote blue straight down the aisle, vote red straight down the aisle. Mm-hmm. I think that's lazy. Yeah. I think it let, lends itself into tribalism. We stop thinking. Yeah. Uh, we stop asking critical questions. Yeah. I think our nation will be so much healthier if people that are affiliated with a particular party spent more time doing honest introspection and assessment and self-critiques of their own party rather than That's good. demonizing the other party. Yeah. So there's that. And so this whole encouragement to be uh, that, you know, when we're seeking to embody what we feel like we're called to do, yeah, we're, we're not going to satisfy um, people perhaps on both sides that want us to think linearly along mm-hmm. those ways. And I'm yeah. not suggesting that everyone on those parties think in those ways but i think in a society where it feels you know i can't i don't have any data to to support this but it feels as if the sense of like tribalism or partisan politics it feels very incessant in our larger society Mm -hmm. right now and so as a result we have this lingering fear to sometimes resist um, one particular party's platform yes. and adopt it as simply my own. Yeah. So when people ask me from a political perspective, I'll say, Eugene, are, are, are you Republican or Democrat? Are you progressive or are you conservative? I'm not trying to sound circuitous, and I know I'm not the only one that responds in this way, but my honest question is on, on what issue? What are we talking about? Hmm. Because I think I want to resist this notion that as a Christ follower, and again, that's the main lens in which I'm attempting to see things, um, I just can't imagine a particular party encapsulating anyone's kingdom perspective. Yes. So, and how does that flesh itself out? Certainly at the polls for me, certainly in my work, but yeah, even as a pastor, you know, there are conversations that I'm having theologically where I might be seen by some people as very progressive, yep. you know, uh, and yet by others being very conservative. No. And I try not to, you know, I'm not trying to use that as a badge of like, woe is me, <clears throat> how difficult it must be. But I think to, to give people permission, that's the main reason. I want to give people permission that it's okay if you don't fit perfectly into a particular box. Yep. Um, so I tell people pretty often when I, because I, I end up in or I instigate conversations in the world of politics relatively often that uh, like I'm upfront about, like I registered as a Democrat when I was 18 and I've stayed. So I am a registered, I'm a registered Dem. Um, and I, I do my best to live here prophetically and faithfully. And part of why I say that is so that folks can trust when I ask questions like the one I'm about to ask, because we can mm-hmm. say, you know, uh, I, I resonate, I deeply resonate with your book. Uh, I also resonated. There was a shorter article. I, gosh, it was several months ago, if not almost a year ago now, um, by, uh, the pastor in New York. Why am I blanking on his name from Manhattan? Um, 
highly respected in evangelical circles. Uh, Tim Keller. But Tim Keller, who wrote about, you know, mm-hmm. no one party can encapsulate the kingdom kind of thing. This is true. Isn't there a bit of a false equivalence? If we're, if we're going to be like, if we're going to think pastorally and we're going to think relationally, um, am I not setting my people up poorly if I'm like, hey, you know, party allegiances in general? Is not Republicanism more problematic, not because it is by nature as Republicanism more corrupt, but is not the allegiance to Republicanism more of a problem in particularly white evangelical spaces? And if so, do we not set our people up for, um, do we not, do we not set our people up well enough to get well if we don't name the actual sickness? I mean, I, I would say yes and no. And okay, here, here's me being non-committal again, but let me explain. <laughs> that's myself. great. No, I, I think I think that's true. I think that's I think we have to name the fact that in geographical regions, in certain social contexts, you have to name it. And I think that could be our obsession or our allegiance to the Republican Party, <laughs> even from a, a Christian context. When I became a Christian at the age of eighteen, I guess I walked a very different path than you did because when I became a Christian at the age of 18 and I asked questions about political engagement, how should I vote? 99.9% of the responses I got from people were, if you're a good Christian, you vote Republican. Don't ask questions. Well, I was a terrible so Christian. I, I was a terrible Christian from the outset. I think that's part so of how that, that went that, down. Well, that's why I said 99.9%. <laughs> you're the 0.1%. Yeah. So, but I mean, I think that answer in itself was problematic because it encouraged, uh, don't think for yourself, don't ask questions and basically this blind allegiance. And so, yes, I think it is, we're setting our congregations and people for failure if we don't name some of those things. Now, on the other hand, you need to know that I've pastored here in Seattle for the past 23 or so years. And it's a really different context than the context that I grew up in, yeah. where now I, I actually hear the absolute opposite. Hmm. And I'm going to even say this, even with, the, even with a higher sense of arrogance yeah. and vitriol, oh, yeah. that if you're a true Christian, you have to vote this way. And it has a particular framework and dismisses anything and everything outside of that framework. Yeah. So when I'm pastoring in Seattle, I feel like I've got to speak pastorally, but also prophetically to a city that voted 92 to 93% for the Democrats, right? Yeah. I mean, that's the context that yeah. I'm speaking to. It's good. So that's the reason why I would say that I it's, it is important for leaders, for Christians to be contextual to where you're at. I'm watching, you know, <clears throat> memes, little images, whatever, getting bounced around the internet more so now. And again, as a, you know, as a lifelong Democrat, a lot of the the noise that I hear, I shouldn't call it all noise, but a lot of the the sound, some of it's noise, is left-leaning noise, um, which is a good band name. But, and I'm mm-hmm. seeing stuff like, um, uh, what was the one the other day? There's you know this image of someone at a vol- at a you know polling booth. It's a draw- it's an illustration of a drawing, and and the the one you know over across the top it says you know I I'll be your friend or I'll love you no matter who you vote for, and then the bottom says not anymore, 
where it's like somehow like it's all changed now. And like if you vote for and left leaning friends uh, like, hey, if you vote for Donald Trump, we can't talk anymore. Mm. And I hate the I I hate division. Like I don't I don't like it. I've never it's never made sense to me coming in the door of of, of Christendom from the outside at eighteen. You know divisions between churches and like I never really got it. And that's not just me being silly. It's like I actually really don't. You know even now that I'm older, I'm like I don't understand why we choose some of these things. Um, but the the part the part about it that I I, I wonder about and I want to throw at you because I've seen you preach and you don't um. You're measured in general, but you, when you land on something you care about, there is, there's a fire in your belly and there are things that are, that are appropriate. Uh, there are things that are appropriate angers, appropriate, uh, targets for anger. Can you talk about the role of anger? Like now, like what does someone do right now? If you've been, as an example, you're a lifelong Republican and you're watching your party, one of the narratives, you're watching your party get hijacked by this odd, like, monstrosity, and you don't recognize and feel like you have a belonging anymore, or you're, you know, lifelong left-leaning person, and you can't just, you just can't get your head around why we keep floating, like, older white men to the top, and we don't represent, you know, like, and there's just, what does someone do politically? socially internally spiritually with the anger that comes with because if i'm not going to make it a meme and try to punch some punch someone to throw it on facebook which i probably shouldn't <laughs> what do i do with that should i not be mad should i not be angry do i just bury yeah. that if i've got mad what am i supposed to do about the kind of angry i get at what's wrong politically yeah i think that's a great question and it's probably the question that lots of groups should be having with their community, small groups, churches, neighbors, their own family members. Um, my first response would be, uh, it might be time for a Netflix binge, uh, just, just to, just, just, just to, you know, just to be real and Go shut say, down hey, for a while, bro. Sometimes yes. you just have to, as part of self care. No, but you know, this is, I mean, I have so many different thoughts to this that yeah. feel cluttered. But the first thing that I would say is, I don't think we as human beings, we know how to lament. Hmm. Um, so, so it's not just an initial outrage, right? I feel like there's so many fits of just outrage and anger yeah. that it doesn't have any impact on me. Hmm. And I wonder, I wonder if people might be like myself, where my emotional outburst is to be really angry and to say something, but it hasn't taken a deep hold of my life. That's good. It's not going to change me besides the fact that I do something maybe for the sake of virtue signaling. I'm not sure. I'm not dismissing the actual anger that I'm feeling, Right. but there are times I've been really outraged by something that it's more temporal than anything deeper that I think has the propensity of influencing how I live my life or the trajectory of how I live my life. Mm -hmm. And I think, and I don't know, but this is my hypothesis. I think it's because we don't really know how to sit with deep lament and grieving mm -hmm. because we live in a society where it's just constant change. So I, I would actually suggest that, you know, it is normal and appropriate. And I think actually holy to sit in deep lament mm -hmm and be broken 
broken by the things that break God's heart. That would be one. Hmm. Um, and again, I, we really have to go beyond this 24 hour cycle. I and mean, I think it's, it's a lot deeper and you need a community of people to do this with. It's good. The second thing that I would just say is anytime we're angry about something, the question that I want to pose myself or others and some of the folks that I've pastored hate me when I say this, I'll say, what will you do? Yeah. Um, maybe it's not the most pastoral things. Maybe they want me to empathize with them and sit with their anger. And I think I, that's true. I should do that. And I try doing that. But then the next question I ask, okay, so what are you going to do? How then will you live? And I think that's an important question that yeah. we should be asking so that we're not just simply contributing static anger to our society. And the last thing that I'll just say, particularly and specifically to, 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 to the elections and to politics I don't think this is a lot of people, but maybe it is. I don't know. But I, I really do feel that there are some, I don't have a, a number, but there are some, maybe more than I want to think, that we've reduced our civic engagement to one vote yep. every two or four years. Yep. And that's it. <clears throat> yeah. And the emotions around that one vote. That's it. That That's it. Mm -hmm. And I think if that's the case, I actually want to put a mirror in front of that person, in front of myself and mm -hmm. say, I think it's possible that we're actually part of the problem. It's good. Um, to reduce it to one vote every two, four years, and then you add the sprinkling of anger and hard conversations. That's what contributes to an unhealthy society. Um, the the point about what do you, you know, what do you do with that? Um, I, I honestly, I think that's deeply pastoral. There, I don't know what you grew up listening to, but um, Rage Against the Machine was like it, the, dead center to my emotional experience of life as a, as a teenager and a college student. In fact, Zach Delaroche is one of my favorite lines uh, from the song freedom. He says, anger is a gift. And it was this really cool, like, Oh yeah, anger is a gift. You know, when I was young and stupid and just mad about things I shouldn't have been, but over the course of time, from the standpoint of even like spiritual practice and discipline, you actually just got to it. Like anger is the thing. If I'm bothered by something, if I'm undone by something, sadness is appropriate. But over the course of time, sadness can just kind of lock me in my place. And I'm just sad. And I'm just overwhelmed. Anger actually ends up propelling me, or at least it should propel me. It like, should move me towards, like, so what do you do? And that's what I'm saying. Like, it's, it's this thing where, like, I, I think it's part of where the vitriol comes from. It's part of, like, I don't know what to do with it, so I'm going to repost this thing. I'm going to throat punch someone on Twitter. Instead of, like, okay, what do you what do you build with that? You know, what, what do you, what do you make out of that? Um, you, um, you talked about partisanship. Um, you talked about, um, there's this great line from your book, um, chapter, I'm losing it. Uh, I can't, can't find the chapter right now, but it's, it's like page 226. He said, it's a radical approach to open yourself up and befriend those who hate you. And you can't get much more radical than a black man caring about a Klansman. So it's like this context is contextual. There's a bit of a story about, uh, you know, hatred and the kind of crossing the lines. There really is an art that we, ha again, it is an art that we have culturally lost. Like just the inability to care about, to like, like you said, to, to befriend those who hate you. And what I'd love you to do just for a moment is to talk about the difference between befriending someone and liking them. Mm. 
Because befriending someone is a choice. It's a decision I've made. I will befriend mm. you. Mm. Liking someone is just an emotional response. And I've got to kind of like part of the deal, like it ends, right? The relationship ends because sure. I don't, I don't like you. Sure. Well, you know, that, that story that you mentioned about uh, befriending, it's in the context of a larger story about a man named Daryl Davis. Uh, and people can Google him, but here's an African-American musician who befriends Klansmen and has been able to form deep, lasting relationship. Many of them have given up their, their, their Klansmen robes. Uh, and that's crazy in itself. And, you know, this, this might be countercultural in our society because it is countercultural. It is crazy. It is radical. It's a lost art. Uh, people scoff at it in many ways, but for me, it's not my idea and Hmm. I don't claim it to be my own. And again, this is coming from my perspective as a Christ follower. I tell people following Jesus is not for the faint of heart. Hmm. Uh, If we think it's easy, it's because we've domesticated it and sanitized it for nice consumption, but it's really radical. And when you look and examine, when you study Jesus's life, clearly his, his supernatural miracles are very impressive. Walking on water, the feeding of thousands of people. And, Yet on top of that, I think the part about his life that most fascinates me is when he chooses to befriend people he was not supposed to befriend. Yeah. yeah. And I think he does that by sincerely being interested in their humanity, sincerely interested and, and concerned for their dignity. The Samaritan woman at the well, uh, the the Samaritan leper who comes back, uh, the woman who's been sick of internal bleeding for years. All of these stories and even him reaching out to Zacchaeus, the tax collector. Like I don't know if there is a more hated, vilified right. person in that context than a Jewish tax collector who works for the Roman Empire. Yep. And yet... That's what Jesus does. And so do I, So, the, to your question, I actually don't like befriending people I don't like. Yeah, man. I, you know, I, I don't. I don't like that. I care about myself. I care about my boundaries. And yet there's this tension within me that as a Christ follower seeking to embody a different path, a different way, is it a commitment um, on a good day, yes. On a bad day, no. But there's this constant tension where I, I know that that's what the kingdom of God seeks to embody here on this earth. You don't spend all that much time. You used to spend more time on Twitter. Used to see more on Twitter. You don't spend as much time online doing online things. I'm assuming there's there's something of a conscious choice there. Um, With regards to, so I'd love to hear if you have any insight. If uh, uh, willing to share, like, hey, this is why I'm not around on online as much anymore. Great. If not, you don't have to. That's not the conversation. Mm -hmm. But with regards to like political engagement and political conversation, um. 
I'm around folks a lot. I mean, in this conversation, a ton of folks are like, they'll blame Facebook or they'll blame Twitter or they blame Instagram. They blame the platform. Uh, and, and I don't particularly buy that. So again, like putting all my cards on the table, like I don't buy that. Like, I don't, I don't think you can blame Facebook if you're a jerk. Here's your book. It, you're the jerk. Like Facebook might mm-hmm. allow that. Facebook might even mm-hmm. like, uh, like tick up that algorithm and make that look, you know, cooler, but that's a choice you make mm-hmm. to be a jerk. What's your take here? Can, can, can Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever comes next. I mean, I don't think there are a whole lot of political fights on Pinterest. Who knows? I, I wouldn't, I would like, that would be interesting to watch, I guess. But can, can online platforms be healthy, fruitful, loving human spaces for political conversation? Or is it just like, yeah, don't because it's going to go South because it's trash over there. Sure. Well, I haven't been on Twitter as much because I've decided to resurrect my MySpace account. And I've been on MySpace a lot. Uh, What's your band out. name, bro? What's your band name? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Got your four tracks uploaded. Geez. Your top eight. That's right. Gosh, remember those good old days. It was a great you know, platform. I, I, mean, I, I think I resonate with what you shared. I mean, for me, I actually think at the culprit, the culprit of all things, I mean, there are mediums and channels that we should examine and analyze and all that kind of stuff. But mm-hmm. at the end of the day, it's always human beings yeah. that are behind these things. We could, we could easily get rid of Facebook if every single person decided to say, you know what, we're going to boycott Facebook for the next X amount of months. And it could radically change its decision. Yep. And I know, having spoken with friends who work for Facebook, is that they're not really at all concerned about this boycott movement because they know that beyond the initial maybe wave, it all settles back down. So it comes down to, I think, human beings and our personal decision. And it sounds a little political. Like I I actually think that while there are systems and structures that we should be mindful about, um, I have a very strong emphasis on personal decisions, personal responsibility. And I, that's one of the things that I'm frustrated by in a lot of the conversations that go on about justice work. We should talk about justice. We should talk about systems and structures and unjust systems, institutionalism, interpersonal stuff. I don't think we spend enough time talking about personal responsibility as well. Both of these things really, really matter. It's good. And yet sometimes in the Republican Party, it feels like there's so much emphasis on like personal responsibility. It's people need to pick themselves up by the bootstraps. I get that, but it just irks me so much Mm. that we still have leaders who are unwilling to acknowledge that something called structural systemic racism exists. Even exists. It's mind-blowing. It is mind-blowing. And I think in some ways this explains why there's such a, um, such a, 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 I mean, wide gap in how we see things. Yeah. And I think in some ways it's because, you know, I don't know, overly simplistic. Uh, I think it's part of it is that we could easily be in our own bubbles, in our Mm -hmm. echo chambers, and we begin to listen to our own voice in a choir of other people who sing like us, think like us, Mm -hmm. feel like us. And Mm -hmm. that's what's dangerous to me. The fact that we're in these constant bubbles. Last thing. um, And I love landing here. I'm glad we got to get here within, within the hour. I've got you. Um, one of the things I've admired about your, uh, about the, the, the ethos in, in your work is when it's, uh, 
when you have addressed, I don't even want to call them more difficult, maybe just more necessary <laughs> issues, um, uh, cultural things that folks will call different. That's a tough conversation to have. It's like, nah, I don't know that it's tough. It's just, you haven't, we're not practiced at it. It's utterly necessary, which is the exact you know, same reason we don't do it. <laughs> You're a, you're a bit of a futurist. In other words, like like you're not a you don't simply diagnose. You paint pictures for your stuff is generally hopeful. I mean, you lose it, you get pissed like everyone else does. But what you work at is from a future hope. It's almost always present, and whether and I don't know how hard you have to work sometimes to get there, but you're generally pointing forward to something. You generally have a vision. You're you're pointing towards. Um, little bit of a game to end here kind of like the, the lexicon game we started with 15 years from now, if the seeds you've planted and watered, uh, if the work you've done in the world, um, bears its most vibrant fruit, like if it works, Eugene, like if, if you done your work, pastor, this book, uh, what you're doing is with in advocacy. Now, if, if what you do with your life and your work, if it works, and takes hold, what's happening in the world around you? What does the world around you look like if you're successful in that kingdom sense of successful? What's it look like around you in your around world? What's it look like in Seattle? What's it look like in DC? What's the world look like if you succeed at what you're doing? What do you look like? Hmm. Wow. That's a beautiful question. I almost want to just end with that question because <laughs> uh, I think that question in itself is what's hopeful. Hmm. And so thanks for even asking it. You know, I think we need to be asking those kinds of questions because those kinds of questions I think are hope are forging and inspiring a different kind of imagination. Hmm. Uh, but since you spoke of hope, let, let me just address a couple of things and then let me try to, yeah. Answer that. Yeah, go for it. You know, a couple things that have given me hope. Obviously, you know, this kingdom theology has given me tremendous hope. There's a theologian by the name of Gerhardus Voss, hmm. who was an early 20th century Princeton theologian, and he penned something that people are using now without knowing that it came from him. He, he, he coined this phrase, the kingdom here and not yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, so as to speak of, of this tension that we live in, and yet we have this hope of a future. Um, Martin Luther King Jr. speaks about this arc of the moral universe, right? Mm-hmm. That ultimately it bends towards justice. And I, I, I believe that. I, mm-hmm. I, I do believe that. It doesn't, again, give me an out. And then there's another theologian by the name of uh, Jorgen Moltmann, and I uh, – often use his book, A Theology of Hope. Hmm. And the reason why I'm seeking out these sources and sermons and books about hope is because I have to really work hard to have hope. It's not because it comes easily or naturally. And 2020 has certainly been a challenge to many of us. But in his book, Uh, theology of hope. This is what he has to say about this. And I love this. He says, quote, genuine hope is not a blind optimism. Mm. It is hope with open eyes, which sees the suffering and yet believes in the future. So 15 years from now, what I envision in my life 
is I want to be very honest and stark and real and genuine about the suffering that I see in this world, hmm. in my city, in my nation. Um, and there's so many that we can list. Now, I can't do everything. You can't do everything. But there are some things that I feel like God has called me to particularly utilize hmm. gifts and talents and skills and yeah. energy towards it, particularly around issues of hunger and poverty, mm -hmm. vulnerability. Um, I, I hope that as a result of my life, there are less people that are experiencing hunger and poverty mm -hmm. in my city, in our nation and around the world. And 2020 has been an incredibly challenging year. I mean, I mean the statistics, I'll just give you a glimpse that has made an impact on people that are experiencing hunger, approximately 150 more million people in this world hmm. are going to be thrown into the state of extreme poverty as a result of COVID-19 by the end of 2021. It'll be 115 by the end of this year. 40% of black and brown families with children right now are having a hard time putting food on the table right now. 40%. One out of three families with children overall are having a hard time. So this is, I mean, and yeah, this is, in 15 years, I'd love to say all of this will be gone. Clearly, we know that it's going to be a constant challenge. But mm -hmm. my hope is that as a result of my imperfect, small contribution, uh, that there might be a dent on these things. Mm. Uh, if you've known me for some time, um, Again, not perfectly, but I've always just wanted to be a voice encouraging other sisters in leadership. And I hope that there might be a dozen people, you know, uh, of sisters in Christ who said, hey, this brother really encouraged me, was very vulnerable with me and was able to um, cheer me on in, in, in areas of leadership. Um, uh, I hope that 15 years from now, I'm 65 years old. Oh my goodness! Uh, <laughs> that there might be younger leaders, you know, mm. younger leaders who, who might say that they were about to give up on serving Christ or giving up Christ, mm. but as a result of um, not embellished leadership but honest leadership, yes, uh, that they were encouraged by these things. So that's a great question. I, I really want to place the emphasis back on that question. It's a beautiful question Thank and you. one. That before we know it, and I'm not sure if this was your intent, but before we know it, 15 years will just pass by, yep. just like that. Yep. And I hope that those who are listening, and I feel this way, I don't want to wait 15 years from now to figure <laughs> out how I'm going to answer that question. That's right. What I do, what I do now, what I do tomorrow, what I do this week. That's good. All contribute to the formation of that answer. That's good. Well, Eugene, I really enjoy and benefit from and like and am inspired by your brand of hope. And uh, so I, I'm really glad you're doing what you're doing with the book. And um, thanks for making some time, man. Man, I appreciate you. And I hope you haven't given up making music, man. Keep doing it. Uh, <laughs> it's a blessing to people. I'm serious, man. Keep, keep doing it. It's the plan. And thank you for listening to this episode of the At Sea Podcast. If you'd like to keep up with Eugene Cho, you can just visit him at eugenecho.com. It's E-U-G-E-N-E, -E -E, Eugene, and Cho is C-H-O, eugenecho.com. 
From there, you can jump to Amazon and pick up his brand new book, Thou Shalt Not Be a Jerk, which we talked about during the podcast. And if you search the name Eugene Cho, he's kind of the only guy around that area in any of the social media platforms. He's worth a follow. He's worth engaging with. If you would like to be part of the team of folks that makes this podcast work, you can jump to patreon.com and search my name, Justin McRoberts. We would love to have you on the team. Until next time.